Ayushi Mona and you're listening to India Booked, a podcast where we lean into the idea of India through its literature and we speak to authors who bring this to life. Shimona, your host on India Booked, a podcast where we look at India through the eyes of its literature. And I cannot think of a book uh, that, you know, is a testament to what I seek to do uh, through this podcast as much as Raya by Srinivas. Because Srinivas has written a fabulous biography, which has, I think is really uh, one of the first, if not the only books in English that puts across the story of Krishnadevraya in in public hands in the form of accessible literature. So, Srinivas, first of all, welcome to the show. It, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Ayushi. I really am honored to be here and I'm so happy to speak to you and your uh, listeners. And I mean, just to say also what you said about the book, uh, I really appreciate because that is certainly something that I was attempting to do, and I'm glad that um, it, I guess, it worked. So, Shinivas, I'll start with my journey of inviting you to the podcast. Uh, when I st- and I am uh, now about some twenty episodes into the podcast, right? And my first episode on the podcast uh, was an episode on Akbar, uh, and I had invited Mani Mukda to speak um, about Akbar, and and it was about again. And I'm drawing parallels because it's part of my own reader's journey. It might, uh, of course, it has nothing to do with your writer's journey or the listener's journey. But for me, that book was also a very provocative book to read in the sense that I had had this very formulaic Mughal, liter- Mughal history taught to me by way of schooling, right? And and then I read this book where Akbar is a person, but his um, governance and military strategies and, and way of being is, is contrasted in, in say, Mani Mukda's book uh, in the context of present-day India. And then I read Raya, and, and frankly, I was slightly intimidated by reading Raya because I didn't, I hadn't read uh, anything about uh, Deccan uh, history in my history books. Huh? It wasn't taught to me in my curriculum. So for me, uh, unlike say Akbar and Aurangzeb or Gandhi or Nehru, you know, this is something that I was reading for the first time when I was, you know, just even before, you know, uh, putting down my thoughts, I was like, oh, I hope I pronounce this right. And I hope uh, that my understanding in a first reading is astute enough. What do you think uh, really uh, for somebody getting introduced to uh, the history of Deccan, what aspects of it do you think that this book very nicely segues into? And I want to ask you that instead of telling you about the things I learned, because you were obvi- this is written in the context of time, it's written in the context of um, literary evidence, Portuguese accounts, so many things, right? So what all narratives of Deccan's history were you piecing together when you started working on the book? Well, you've raised many very important uh, topics. So let me first address the basic uh, issue of history, history writing, uh, history education in India, let us say post-independence. And what you have, you know, you have a standardized kind of 
you know, as a nation grows, they have to have a national story. And so these certain kind of stereotypes of, of historical markers get put into place. You know, Akbar the Great and the Mughals, you know, the South, something totally different is happening, uh, whatever it is. And as you're saying, uh, some of these basic formulations that we have are just get in place and that's what you get taught in school and, and, and that's what it is. But then the whole discipline of history, at least in the Western discourse and how we I mean, how we use it now, it is not itihasa. This is not itihasa I'm discussing. Now, history. History as a discipline, um, you know, is all about looking at those formulations and seeing how they change over time. And that's when you get the discipline of historiography. So historiography just means like the history of history, you know, like how did we look at our history in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 70s, 90s, and now I'll be... So, Part of all of the writing of this book was to address that kind of historiographic imagination of Vijayanagara, the South, and in this case, the Deccan, which, as you said, you know, if we if we definitely if, if we look at basic kind of histories of India, there's, you know, the great kind of kings of the South, like Rajaraja and all those guys, Pallavas, Cholas, Pandyas, all of that stuff. And then you have the North with the Mughals. And, you know, so you have the, the constant North-South divide, whether it's linguistic or whatever historic in India that we have, plays out in our understanding of history. And so the Deccan being literally the middle of that, you know, uh, I mean, technically, actually, Deccan comes from Dakshin, which, you know, it means South. But anyway, the Deccan, as we understand it today, is basically the middle part. The deep South is, is something different. And so the Deccan, bringing the Deccan, as they say, a lot of studies have been happening the last like 10, 15 years on Deccan stuff. And, and you know, all those scholars, and I, I quote them extensively in the book, you know, repositioning the, the, the Deccan in the center of Indian history in a sense. You know, we took the center out of, the geographic center out of the historical picture, and we're trying to put it back. And what that allows, and this is the best part, is that because it's in the center, you can then get perspectives on both the north and the south while you're studying, like, what was happening in this very unique um, period and geographic area. It does. And um, while, and, you know, of course, I did say that it's in the context of the land and and, and I think you've put it so astutely. Your objective, uh, Srinivas, of course, is not to just recount a series of events or talk about the region, right? Your book is obviously focused on um, the portrait of a king here, right? Where did your personal fascination uh, uh, begin? And and you've, if I'm not, again, wrong, you you translated uh, uh, Krishnadevaraya's uh, epic poem as part of your doctoral thesis right and and you've been working on this for so many years and you i am uh, very fascinated with this kind of infatuation if i may call it with a subject that carries uh, you to read so much and and learn so much and write about it and and so singularly right but i'm sure for you it, it the genesis was somewhere or you picked up something and and had, how have even that personal interest, right, evolved, right, from the beginning to while you were, you know, working with your editorial team to perhaps now where you are in your understanding and perception after, you know, the book's been read by so many people and so many people have discussed it with you. Right. It's uh, a great question. It's a fairly straightforward answer. I mean, you know, you work in academia and you have to kind of get slotted 
into your your thing. You're a historian if you've got a PhD in history. You're a this if you've got you know it, it's it's very siloed out uh, academia. As much as they love to talk about interdisciplinarity, most uh, places are not interdisciplinary. And the sad thing is, knowledge is interdisciplinary. But anyway, my point is that my training, my love, my basic passion of all of this stuff is is classical literature. I read text. That's what I do. I love it. I love to translate poetry. And, uh, you know, without getting into a large discussion about Telugu literature and what that means in, in regard to, you know, Indian literature or world literature writ large, the poem of Krishnadevaraya, you know, this, this amazing king, like the greatest king of the South, writes also arguably the greatest Telugu poem that's ever been written. I mean, it, it's really, it's a fantastic and, and, and truly singular work uh, in so many ways. And so, you know, my thesis work was more on the literary aspect of it, although, of course, you have to do the history stuff. So my passion for it all came from reading his work, his poetry, and being just enamored by the depth of not only beauty that he could see in the world, but also the spiritual longing of this man who was also a great warrior and king and all of that coming together. I mean, he's really like, he's a Renaissance man of the highest order. And it's very easy to fall in love with someone like that. Uh, so I remember when I finished you know, my thesis and other things I wrote about him, then I finished this biography, I sent it to my gurus. And both of them said, you know, you must have been uh, Raya in, in your previous life. And, and I feel that way. So, I mean, when you read someone's literature for that long, you really feel like you're getting a perspective deep into their psyche. And that, to me, is also what makes this book special is because that's my main perspective is to try to take this from his eyes, how he was seeing the world, how he was making decisions. And I feel like those feelings, emotions, you know, negotiations that he had going on are most deeply reflected in his literature. Um, so in that sense, uh, it's really the, 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 the literature that drives me more than anything else. I'm so glad you use the phrase Renaissance man, because, you know, there is this, there's this picture of, you know, a king as actually just a warrior or, but what, such a fascinating portrait, right? Because there's obviously this perception of how uh, Krishnadev Raya is painted and, and there's this whole, you know, oh, this is the iconic king of South India or the, or the greatest king. or And then there is um, uh, so much uh, that that's obviously about him being a shrewd statesman, but also a brilliant poet, a benevolent ruler. Um, the cultural life at his court, right? The kind of the just the dynamism of that era. I, I think it's very difficult to not be fascinated by it. I I also felt a uh, a sense of sadness, if I may say so, that that it's not available in you know more visually elaborate forms for people to consume. This is at large, right? And and for for this to be really consumed in a more mass form. What I meant, I think, let me just sort of explain what I meant, was that I I wish this would be like a full-fledged like docu-series on Netflix or, or a film very soon. Because We're working on it. We're working on it, Aishi. But, you know, just to touch on that, what you said, because, well, you said two really interesting things, and we can return to the the loss and and, and the romanticism of loss in a second, because that is a very important uh, piece of this puzzle. Um, But in terms of visually, I mean, the thing I'm always telling people is, you know, you can go to Humpy. 
you can go to Vijayanagara. It's alive. It's so amazing and it's beautiful. It's one of the best archaeological sites that you can visit in India because unlike, you know, you go to Taj Mahal, you go to whatever, uh, this one or that one, uh, you know, you pay a fee, there's the ASI's little thing and then you walk around and bus for But here, you know, there is stuff like that there, but then you just can sprawl. It's sprawling. It's a whole city, you know, that's just there amongst the rocks. I mean, I really recommend if you read this book and then go to Humpy, you'll have a great time. I, I was actually going to say this and this is, you know, one of the things that I've scribbled in my notebook and I was going to say this at the end and I'm so glad we're even saying this at the beginning uh, is to probably uh, read the book, um, start reading the book right before you go to Humpy and then read it on your way traveling there and <laughs> wrap it up by the time you're done there. Yeah, so that that's what Will, Will Dalrymple said that. He's like, you got to read this before you go to Humpy. And I was like, yeah, I know. it's Because it, it's true. Like, you can read other books on Humpy. You can see beautiful picture books, Vijayanagara, all wonderful. I mean, incredible work. But a lot of them fail to capture, and this is maybe where the loss gets in, the, the romanticism of it all, the poetry of it all. You know, it, it, history can become so dry when the, when you actually look at the history of this time, it was nothing but dry. It was just so lush and rich and colorful. And, you know, we, we, we lose that sometimes in historical writing and, in, 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 you know, the more drier kind of historical analysis or whatever. But the stuff is really vibrant. And even though Vijayanagara Hampi, okay, well, it was, you know, whatever, destroyed and it's been abandoned and forgotten city and all this stuff. It's not. If you actually go there... It, that's the haunting life of it is that is that romanticism of like a ruin you know and 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 it only intensifies the the emotions because you know you can still see so many of these things you can go to the places exactly that I'm talking about all these places and it, it's beautiful and 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 just to finish i mean i know i can talk a lot about all these things but you know the real core point of it all is and this is what makes india different than other places uh maybe any other place on earth is that we have a very different sense of history. We, I mean, the whole discipline that I'm talking about, this history discipline, this is not an Indian thing. This is a Western thing that we've adopted. And, and you know, it's, it has very good things and we, that's important. But the real history, the real Indian history, is in places like Hampi, living places. Like people still worship at that same Virupaksha temple. You can still go take the Aarti there. So, I mean, history is not... In books in India, history is just the lives of people. People are, are history in India so, and those places. So we have to go there to understand Indian history. Otherwise, no good. I think that's that's absolutely true. And um, some of this, of course, is, is truly unfortunate, right? Because the kind of schooling systems that we have, uh, I mean, and, and, and this is true, I think, for almost everywhere that, you know, countries were colonized, like, you know, say the curriculum that the French pushed on on Vietnamese children in you know in say in two languages and and a very sort of sanitized by the book version, right? This date this happened, this date that happened is is also the kind of curriculum that schools and convents and 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 consequently what is perceived as a high quality or good education in India, whereas really and 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 I think oral history, which again is, is a little problematic. I don't know if problematic is the right word, Srinivas, and please uh, help me because I'm just thinking out loud as we talk. Bazaar history, right, or certain perceptions of history or history that gets circulated um, in popular perception. Like, I think one good example, perhaps in the context of 
uh, Raya is is uh, the Tenali uh, Raman uh, fable that exists, right? For me, as a child, I was introduced to that via via say Cartoon Network, right? When I was a toddler, and then you know that oh, there's this king also, you know. But then that that dynamic becomes very like a Akbar Birbal dynamic, and there's a certain whatever, almost. frivolous sort of understanding which unfortunately doesn't get deepened with time it's a it's a perfectly acceptable introduction for a child right to storytelling but as one sort of grows older it doesn't really add to a nuanced understanding of the indian ethos of being right so i'm i'm just your thoughts i'm just speaking my mind really here I think yes. I mean, I think the critical point that you said, uh, you know, vis-a-vis these Vietnamese education, let's say by the French, it's British education in India. I mean, the the real thing that's happening. It, it, okay, yes, it's a different epistemological kind of frame coming in. That's one thing, but the deeper thing and the more, as you say, problematic thing, is traditional knowledge becomes devalued. and this other form of knowledge this other form of history this other form of knowing the world is valued promoted and made the kind of gateway to you know prosperity success and flourishing of whatever kind and so you know the grandma's stories are devalued you don't want to hear your grandma's story you better read a book why why would you listen to your grandma or you know why would you want to watch some little uh, cartoon children's stories about all this stuff you need to be reading like a big history book that uh, some britisher wrote so what i do in the book i mean you know i read all that stuff from amrachita kala to you know everything in between to the most phd whatever guy uh, and and they're all the same to me <laughs> actually i mean because everything all of those elements are contributing to a consciousness about a person because you know our understanding of a historical person a figure or a, a period or whatever it's a collective thing i mean history is done collectively i mean people write books but it's about a kind of imagination that has been generated and becoming part of the collective so maybe for indians we had a, a imagination of you know this jokey character like birbal like atanali raman and then you know there was this great kind of smart funny witty king also involved and you know so you understood that's fine that's nothing wrong with that but then we need to buttress it with let's take now a class excursion to hampi for one week study vijayanagara history visit other sites nearby and i'd give my history students a class like that and you know not everyone can go to vijayanagara any village in india has some historical place near it they should know that we should teach that as part of our history so you know we like you said it, it all has to do with education the value of different kinds of education and well not to be very negative but you know i still teach in india you know i'm teaching right now a class in india and uh, you know <laughs> the a lot of the students they love this but you know that's this is just one class that they get to take to actually look into something interesting while they have to finish up their this one that engineering this one maths and get a good job uh we're not valuing that we're not giving young people opportunity we're not giving scholarship for history post postdocs we're not this is what we need to be doing sorry you don't get me started about all this stuff <laughs> i if if you want to shrinivas i think it it's a great i think we should do a separate episode on it uh, and i i think there's a lot of merit about uh, talking about it also but but just to sort of come back on, on what we were discussing earlier right um is this whole uh, concept right of the 
Indian kings being like a kavi raja, right? Or somebody who's enlightened both in in the culture and arts as much as governance, celebrating. Like you know, there's this perception that oh, Napoleon or Henry the Eighth, right? You only sort of have this very testosterone fueled um sort of descriptions of them of wars of I mean it's just very very it just panders to a particular image, right? But the Indian way of things is different, right? Because Indian kings and the Indian way of court is very closely tied to, say, religion, for instance, uh, culture, celebrations, and festivals, and 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 our ethos in the East is quite different, and which is why the whole the kavi and the raja and and the poet king or a philosopher king or whatever an enlightened monarch and and raya I think uh, in this one of the most interesting cases because not only was he himself a poet right his court housed poets in tamil kannada uh, sanskrit right and and a bunch of classical telugu writers and 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 he called them ashtadigajas again my pronunciation is something that i am a little wary of so i mean i hear kind of what you're saying but then again you're saying look the, this philosopher king is also a western idea the whole enlightened king it, it also comes from the west but both of those kinds of traditions were kind of you know that those were classical ideas for anybody you know what i mean like the the the, the you know you look at marcus aurelius so like the the, the 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 christian kings of the you know the medieval period they looked to marcus aurelius as this but they weren't marcus aurelius they like you said they're dealing with all this other stuff and like religious disputes and uh, so this period gets kind of mixed up in that way but i think the the the, the ideal is there kind of both the east and the west um, and in different formations outside of that thing but Again, what you're saying again, about him having the court and the, it, it, that's also, again, we have to see, and this is kind of my new thing is, you know, everyone's, and it's true, I love Raya, I'm a big fan, but honestly, these days, now I've been going back to kind of critique, you know, my own kind of romantic vision of Vijayanagar. I mean, so when you have Vijayanagar, you have now, it's like this elite power thing going on. There's huge empire with tons of money and the same thing, what is being valued? So Sanskrit pundits were there for sure but he also had these regional poets so this is the moment when regional vernacular languages are now getting court support and they're rising in terms of their prestige so in the old days you know if you were a great poet you had to write a kavya in sanskrit and that would be it but now you could write a kavya in telugu a great you know prabandha and you would be considered you know wow amazing like you know all these great poets that were at his court so what I'm trying to say is that power of any kind, whether we kind of glorify it as I think I do, I have to admit to that. And there is a beauty to it. There's a romance to it. That's what I'm getting at. And certainly the kind of enlightened leadership that uh, at least Raya was doing is not present today, man. I don't see any of that right now. So that's one of the other reasons of uh, we, we forget these leaders and what they represent. But anyway, getting back to the point, I'm just saying that power uh, and, and this kind of value of culture are two very linked up things. And governments do have a, a big role to play in what kinds of things are valued. And, and you know, the, our government right now could be doing more, like I'm saying, to create these opportunities for history postdocs or, or whatever it may be. So, but the, we're not aligning ourselves that way. You know what I mean? And that's a political thing. Hmm, absolutely. Oh, I am just wondering, Srinivas, right? That one of the, you know, and... 
I think I, I actually heard this in one of your interviews and, and I want to uh, sort of bring that here is, is I think you, you spoke, I think very eloquently once uh, in one particular interview that I heard, which I'm putting out is that let's maybe not look at India as a melting pot where everything sort of goes and loses shape and form and size, but to sort of look at it as a salad bowl where like every vegetable sort of retains its very own crisp identity and contributes without really changing shape or form or adhering to like a common idea. That example is, is what I was thinking of when you, when you said uh, right now the kind of differences or creating opportunities, right, for postdoc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that that is the model. Like my guru used to always say India is a cellular cu- culture. And you know, he used to say this like a very you know, kind of cryptic way. But then as I, you know, grew up, I mean, I really started to understand what any, you know, a cell, a cell is a self-contained thing. You know, it has a nucleus. It has these, you know, mitochondria or whatever. It's doing all this stuff. A cell can't just function on its own. And again, there's different kinds of cells. So there's a liver cell. So liver cells get together with a bunch of other liver, liver cells, and then they can be a liver, and they can contribute to the whole body as a liver. Uh, and it's so like it's like that. Like different communities are in, in India are like different cells. They make different organs. They make different systems. And that's what creates India. India is all about that. And And the problem we have today is that that kind of being is not, on the table as an option you know what i'm saying like because the whole idea of a nation as it has been conceived which is again a a tiny little paltry idea that came about like a couple hundred years ago or whatever you know the nation itself defies india defies the idea of a nation that's what and, and what we're always dealing with is trying to shove our culture into this narrow vision of what a nation is so that's that's what we're always at. I mean, if you read the Constitution, you can't even understand what it says. It says it's a republic, it's a democracy, then he throws in secular, then he throws in this thing, because we're everything. And you can you should be able to be anything you want in India. That was the whole point. And if you read Raya, I mean, it was thriving, that kind of ethos. I mean, you religion, you do whatever you want. Within Hinduism, you want to pray to Shiva, you want to play to Vishnu, you want to play to Kali, no problem. Nobody cares. You do whatever you want. That's fine. But we're still here together in a society. So there's certain things that we kind of have to like work out. Now, whenever I make this comment, then every the other side will say, oh, you're glorifying everything. What about caste? What about? Nah. Well, caste is also something that's a dynamic thing. Look at Raya. Raya is from a completely peasant background. And this guy became the king of the most huge empire how did it happen well because things are dynamic too even in caste so we 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 have to remember our history the dynamism of our history you know true and he ruled for like two decades right so it's not that that once he became king people were like oh this dude's a peasant and he doesn't belong to the top so off with his head right this is such a great great um, point you know and of course talking about caste is, is extremely sensitive now right because much like everything there is like a very black or white sort of How would the, what's the problem here yeah? it's not black and white that's the whole point point. And, and your mind is a dialectic mind like that you will never be able to see brown and that's what we are. We're just this other brownness. You know, it's like, it's very mixed. And you you have to be okay with that. 
You have to act. And then once you're okay with it, then you start to celebrate it. And that's where the potential of India is what it's all about. I mean, there were times. I mean, there's still times. There's still communities now. If it's a Muslim holiday, all the Hindus will celebrate. If it's holy time, all Muslims are celebrating. If, if something's going on in the Jains, then nobody eats meat that day. Whatever it is. Like, it's not tolerance. It's not tolerance. Tolerance is a bad thing. Tolerance means that you don't like something, so you're tolerating it. That's not what we're here. We're here to celebrate with you. We're here to rejoice with you. We're here to be a community together that allows people to do whatever the hell they want to do. As long as, you know, you're not hurting anybody, then it's fine. So uh, if we can get back to that kind of thinking, man, we'll be a much better place and we'll be a model for how the rest of the world can deal with diversity, which in many parts of the world they didn't have to deal with, but now they do because we're in this global world. Yes. In fact, we've grappled with this so much more before other parts of the world, right? Because the kind of heterogeneity we've dealt with for centuries and centuries is, is something that, you know, in, in this in this world, right, where, you know, you actually, I'm so glad you all said that so vociferously, Srinivas. I'm going to totally clip that out and make it into the trailer for this episode. Because... because you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> no, I mean, I think you know the right point is that basically we've been dealing with this from the beginning of what we can understand as our civilization in India. There was never any uh, force that was trying to define the society as a whole. Now, people will say, well, what about the whole Brahmanic, uh, you know, Chaturvarana, all this stuff? Yeah, that's one line. And it was a dominant line. And we can get into that big discussion. That's a big discussion. I'm happy to do that some other time. But there were many other lines too. I mean, the whole, like, and, and this is the example I always give in the literature, um, like bhakti. Bhakti and it's all, it's hundreds of years in different languages is nothing but that other counter stream. And that's how Indian culture works. There's always like that tension that creates that dynamism. Anyway, this gets into a lot of other stuff that I won't talk about now. But yeah, I know I, I can totally imagine how this conversation will get into hot waters uh, with everyone who thinks uh, that they know better because now now we we all have like this again dialectic school of thought, which is how we never were earlier. But more and more, we have conversations in terms of dualities and and we fix certain adjectives or certain nouns on how we want to talk about the other and then, then there is just a certain school of thought but 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 it's really i don't know if that's how i have experienced the country growing up because even if you're an atheist right you still celebrate festivals you still don't mind going to a temple and a temple is very much a place of worship and community right so so a westerner will come and say what ayushi you just said you're a atheist and now you're going and doing this temple and then you're going to this uh, to see uh, some Sufi saint and that what what's going this doesn't make any sense and you're like yeah I'm an atheist and I go to the temple and I go to the mosque you got a problem with that they, then they don't understand it that's the problem you people can't understand this epistemology it's an it's an epistemological issue and 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 to change someone's epistemology you have to break down their entire world worldview that's the problem so uh, it's very difficult for uh you know to explain this. Uh, no, I, I can imagine, and and um, it, and and which is why you know a lot of and and once you sort of have this worldview that's cemented, right? It, it's very difficult to break out of it until uh, and 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 it's 
especially more difficult when you neither have personal influences and and i think to a certain extent we now encourage thinking in in you know in this bilingual bidual i don't know whatever binary sort of vision right and we don't uh, reject it in our media we don't reject it in our cultural uh, uh, consumption and we don't reject it in our families because we think uh, because we don't think that for instance somebody who is a and and i think this is a very funny example maybe because i am like for instance the ceo of goldman sachs is a dj i can't imagine for the life of me any top industrialist in india or uh, djing on the weekends uh, in in their 50s and and that being considered like normal because this sort of because when you think of somebody as oh a greedy industrialist who's just out to lobby the government you just think of them in that light and then you think of somebody who's like a an activist and then posts about something on social media then it's that so so i think it's it's very challenging definitely to talk about these things because because i think we're all just consuming a lot more of what we want to hear as opposed to just being open to discussion well i mean yeah i mean what you're saying is exactly right and the bottom line is you have to turn off your phone you have to get off facebook and you have to go interact with people and once you start doing that then you'll actually let those epistemological things get broken down because when you're on facebook and twitter and gitter and all this useless junk to be honest i'm not on any of that and people think i'm stupid but that's fine i think that stuff makes people stupid because like you said all it does is further you know retrench your epistemological posts instead of opening you up you don't get different perspectives you're just hearing what you want to hear you're just in this echo chamber of life and then there's all this other life going on like the chaiwala and this guy and that guy and go talk to them be with them and then you you'll understand that the world is a very different place so my recommendation is what you're saying is correct it's been intensified massively in the last 20 years like to a degree that we've never seen in human history and the key is divesting from social media perhaps shrinivas i think um, i'm the next part of you know my conversation that i want to um, to ask chronologically right uh, that certain part of the book is is really based in the military uh, and and the warfare and and the polity if i may call it was this perhaps the easier section for you to write because i, I presume that obviously more accounts etc exist of the the political landscape as opposed to uh, the a, a lot of personal sensitivities and assumptions and and like specific clarity right because it's not accounted as well and how did you really go about structuring uh, the, the the political conversations and, and and this also means dealing with certain sensitivities and not getting into uh, the particular incident that happens with a certain minister in the book but but it somehow stands very much at loggerheads with our perception of raya as as a great statesman Uh, somebody who ruled with an iron hand but but also like a, a warm heart for two decades yeah i'm not sure what the question is exactly but um i think i'll rephrase what what i wanted to ask you was that a was it easier for you to write uh, about the political turmoil and 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 you know military and and the uh, the 
sort of discussions thereof. And the second question I think that I was alluding to was when you uh, look at someone as an inspirational figure, and 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 the book is is you know really in the, in the sense pays homage to uh, Raya, the incident with the minister, which I'm not alluding to courtesy spoilers but how does that sort of stand at like loggerheads in in how you know you want uh, this figure to be perceived so those two questions i think is, is what i want i, I don't know which, there, there's lots of ministers and lots of i'm not exactly sure what which part you're talking about but um i think i know you're talking about the end of the book there is there's a lot of things to be said about all those things uh but let me say this you see like that end part I mean, that's stuff from the oral tradition, that stuff you see in you know, the movies. And, and when, I, when I use movies, by the way, people also have to understand that the movies that came out in the 1950s and 60s, those were written by Kavis. You had to be a published poet. You had to have serious literary skill to even write a screenplay. And, you know, if you watch those movies... No, I mean, if there's any Telugu speaker, well, I won't speak Telugu, but, um, you know, if, if you watch those movies, I mean, you, you really have to know some good classical Telugu to, to really appreciate everything. Um, so there were high level stuff. So um, anyway, the point is that a lot of that stuff comes from the oral tradition. And really, the book was about bringing together that oral tradition. Like, what does the Chaiwala say about Krishna Devaraya? And how does he know all that stuff about him? As opposed to what is, you know, uh, the PhD from Harvard say about it, uh, and they're both perspectives. And what does Nila Kantashastri say in his uh, history of South India? You know, well, all of that stuff. You have to put it all. What do the Portuguese say? All of it together. I wanted to see it, all of this in a totality of like what knowledge is, like how I, in, in sense, how I know this person, and share that with everyone. And the end, of course, you know, that's the humanity. That's it needed. That I mean, anytime you're writing a book, you're telling a story. You know, and, and you have to have, you know, it's just like, a, a, I guess a scholarly paper has an argument, as they say, but, you know, a story is a story. It's a narrative. And that's what I wanted to tell, because that's what even good scholarship is. You have to tell a story. And this was the element that created the a part of, of his humanity. And be, otherwise, it would have been totally like, he's the greatest king ever and, and like was perfect. You know, that's not going to work. And it wasn't true. And there's a lot of other things I didn't get into. There are a lot of things we could talk about. But I'll just add one really important thing, because this might be kind of what you're you're getting at. Um, and then I'll mention one story from my my dear, lovely publisher, who I love, um, Shivapriya. She, like, got me to write all my books. She uh, was like, okay, I think you should, Srini, I think it's time you should write a book, and it should be a biography of Raya. And I was like, okay, like, tell me all the biographies I should read. Like, what are the best ones? And she's like, um, I'll let you know. And then she, I was, I, and then I asked her again because she hadn't responded. And then she was like, do one thing, go and watch um, the OJ Simpson Netflix uh, series. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I watched it with my mom and we loved it. It was so good, you know, 10 episodes tight, everything working together. You're just like so into it. The narrative's excellent. The acting's good. The writing's good. Everything's good. And I watched it and I was like, I got you. And that's how I tried to write it, you know, episodic. I know how many, 15 chapters it has. So those are important. But now, certain chapters, yes, were easier to write than others. One chapter that took me like months, and I even already studied it in my thesis, was basically like you're asking, the, the, the fundamental. And I'll just say it in plain and simple words. So let's just talk about it. You know, Raya is painted as the great Hindu king that stopped the onslaught of Islam. 
that is a fundamental trope that you will learn. Like you, you, my parents learned it. It's, it's still probably in most history books. Now that's just too simple. Um, and it doesn't give the correct full pr perspective at all. But I had to bring in a lot of scholarship, weigh things, and just frame and phrase each word of those sentences in the right way so I could say that in the most balanced way that I could, critiquing not only the old colonial orientalist scholarship, but also current scholarship. I mean, like that, that I don't like either. We need more centered views. So please read that chapter. I think it's chapter five. Um, if you want to know, and I spent a lot of time on that chapter to dance through what could have been very sticky and you can watch, read all the footnotes. That's the other thing. I didn't want any footnotes. I didn't want any number, you know, superscripts in the book at all, but I wanted every single footnote and thing that I would have put in like an academic book at university of press, whatever, uh, in the back of the book. And then we did that. So sorry that I talked a lot, but I uh, spoke a lot, but uh, there it is. No, no, I think that's, that's uh, uh, quite informative and, and it does help us understand the process, you know, that you were dealing with Srinivas while you were writing. I think all I, I would like to tell people is to go and read Raya because it's, and, and I, you know, sometimes uh, it seems as if uh, by virtue of, say, you know, having an author on, on your podcast, you want to tell people that you should read the book and, and that's that's really never the case for me of course please and i think uh, and any section that you would want to read i i'm not going to request uh, for a particular part but but any any portion really that you want so i love doing this with books just opening up to a random page and no matter what it is you have to read it so here we go this is i've opened a page 125 those years after the gajapati campaign were indeed a time of pleasure and repose. The court was bustling with scholars and poets. New construction projects were expanding the city limits. Merchants from around the world came and went. And the city of Vijayanagara was truly at the height of its glory. See, that's a great page to pick. <laughs> After many years of battle, Krishnadevaraya finally had time to settle back into life at the capital. As Paez vividly describes, the king would wake before sunrise and massage his whole body with amber-colored sesame oil before gulping down half a liter of the same. Wearing but a tiny loincloth, he would exercise his arms by lifting great earthenware weights and practicing with a sword until all the soil he had just consumed was sweated out of his body. Next, he would spar with one of his wrestlers before mounting his horse and galloping over the plains until dawn, and then, after being bathed by a trusted Brahmin, he would go to his private temple to offer his daily prayers. Finally, he would make his way to the meeting hall where he would discuss matters of state with trusted officers and city governors. The king adds to the lively picture with his own preferred schedule. And here, this is, see, part of the book is me just translating these great poems. This is the king writing about himself. At dawn, before the physicians ask, did you sleep well? A king should consult his Brahmin astrologers. After this, he should meet with his accountants to discuss state finances before assembling his ministers and lords. In the middle of the day, before training with wrestlers and masseuses, a king should chat with cooks, farmers, and hunters. And as the day turns, he should honor venerable yogis and righteous men before worshiping the gods. And then, after eating, 
A king should enjoy old stories told by poets before being entertained by his jester. And in the evening, he should be with the dancers and the singers, and in the night with his lover before a good night's rest. Vaughn. Oh, wait, here, I got to read this classic last line. It was a truly, this is me now. It was a truly balanced day filled with activities encompassing the range of religious, political, social, and cultural aspects of court life. Certainly, clearly, the king enjoyed moving through various quarters of the palace and interacting with people of every station. For Krishnadevaraya, culture was not only great poems or works of art, it was a way of being. Yata Raja Tata Prajaha goes the saying, as the king, so the subjects. And so the single most important thing that Krishna Devaraya did to promote the cultural culture of his court was to embody within himself the exemplar of a cultured life. Kya bate? I think I can't think of a better section. Are you sure this was picked out like by serendipity? <laughs> totally, dude. That's what I'm telling you. I, I love just opening. I, I, I'll do it again for you if you want. It'll be just as good. <laughs> I, I think let's do one more. <laughs> All right, ready? Yes. 147. Another outcome of the battle was the capture of Salabat Khan, captain general of the Adil Shah's troops. Unlike his master, Salab Khan had rallied his disheartened men and fought to the bitter end. As Nunes proudly describes, the Sultan and his select guard of 500 Portuguese renegades did such wonderful deeds with their terrible strokes, but alas, they all perished, and Salab Khan, like a furious wolf amongst the sheep, was finally taken hostage. I mean, all of that is not even my poetic rendering. That is direct from the sources. Noteworthy is the mention of Portuguese renegades. Now, this is interesting. Men who had left the service of King Dom Manuel of Portugal and found employ at various Indian courts. These men were guns for hire, with no allegiances to anyone but themselves. As we will soon see, another band of Portuguese mercenaries, mercenaries would prove indispensable to Krishnadevaraya and his siege efforts. The, you want me to keep going? What? One more page? The king stayed at the Bijapur camp till all the dead had been burned and the funerary honors had been paid. In the memory of the 16,000 souls who had perished in the battle, he gave much in alms to the local residents. And with these things done, he returned once again upon Raichur and pitched his camp as he had done before. On his return, Krishnadevaraya had a fortuitous encounter with one Cristóvão de Figueiredo, a Portuguese nobleman on his way to Vijayanagara to trade in horses. He was accompanied by a brigade of 20 Portuguese musketeers, whom the king took much pleasure in meeting. He was glad that Figueiredo and his men would witness the war and his great power. He ordered that he be given the uh, fine new tents taken from the Adoshah's camp and had them lodged close to his own quarters. Krishnadevaraya seems to have greatly enjoyed Figueredo's company, and one day as they talked in the royal tent, Figueredo asked if he could go and see the Moors under siege at the fort. Krishnadevaraya refused and was concerned for his new friend's safety, but Figueredo quickly replied, the whole business of the Portuguese is war. 
Letting me go would be the greatest favor that you could do upon me. And upon hearing these words, the king relented and sent a few men to accompany Figueredo and his men to the trenches near the wall. As Nunez describes, Figueredo saw how fearlessly the Moors exposed themselves on the high fort walls. They moved about carefree because they had never faced a weapon that could reach far enough to harm them. With gusto, Figueredo and his snipers found a place to hide and opened fire with their long-distance, high-precision Portuguese muskets. They picked off many Moors, and the king's men found a welcome opportunity to approach the wall in safety. And soon enough, the soldiers ruined their work of chipping away at the masonry and dismantling the fort wall. The muskets the Portuguese carried were of rare quality, able to shoot from a greater distance and with far more accuracy than anyone in these parts had ever witnessed. They were most probably from the Indo-Portuguese tradition of matchlocks, a rather new but innovative amalgamation of Muslim cannon technology, Port, Muslims not, it should have been Islamic there, Islamic cannon technology, and even Islamic is problematic. Anyway, Portuguese artillery knowledge and the masterful gun-making engineers of Goa. It was no coincidence then that the Battle of Raichur was the first major conflict in the Indian interior in which European mercenaries participated and the first documented usage of firearms in the Deccan. Lovely. Thank you so much, Inavas. That was so fun. That was probably the mo my most fun interview I've ever done uh, for this book. <laughs> and uh, and I think it's uh, definitely the most high energy um, interview that I've done. I truly enjoyed speaking to you, Srinivas. And thank you for writing such a fascinating and riveting book, you know, because uh, otherwise then these stories are lost forever and these people are lost to us forever. Uh, while we're, uh, you know, uh, going about our lives. For everyone listening to this episode, um, Srinivas's book Raya is published by Juggernaut, available on Amazon, Flipkart, independent bookstores near you. So do grab a copy uh, to learn more about one of the greatest kings of India and one of the greatest leaders of all times. Thank you. Thank you, Srinivas. Tune in to us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Ghana and HT Smartcast.